Welcome everybody into the valley. I am Ethan Judd, joined by Stephen Gardner of Sun Study with Stephen, if you haven't checked that out. And we are here to talk about a pretty remarkable turnaround in an absolutely insane series as the Suns win game three and four, take care of business at home. And now we look to game five. This is Into the Valley, part of Helio Hoops and the Fans First Sports Network. And Stephen, I don't want to waste any time. Please tell me why Devin Booker is the greatest basketball player of all time. <laughs> Too far? Too far? Uh, just a little bit, but in terms of talking about who's week. playing basketball <laughs> right now, yeah. Who's playing basketball now? Nobody's hooping better than Devin Booker is. That dude is literally in the gym by himself right now. He doesn't see a defender. He only sees teammates that when he's deciding to pass the ball and he's barely even touching the rim on his shots. So, yeah, he's in a different flow state right now. And it's beautiful poetry and motion to, to witness on a night-by-night basis on the highest stage. It It has just been so fun to watch, uh, just plain and simple, to the point where, like, a lot of the times as a Suns fan, I'll watch a Suns game and see Booker do something. And I know as a Suns fan, it is just the best. It's fun. And, look, you can be one of the angry people on the Internet that's like, why is he just now getting credit? I don't care. He's getting love. Let the man get some love. And it's well earned and well worked for. And I love that the whole world is getting to see this because I think so many people forgot what he did during that finals run, broken nose and all, because of how it ended. And what he did in the regular season last year, because how that ended with the Mavericks. And this year, he is just, things are clicking. Kevin Durant's addition cannot be just, I mean, you're, you got to be crazy to think that there's not a connection there, but he is just taking his game, I think, to a new level that we've not seen before, even as Suns fans. And you can talk about his facilitating, his creating, his driving to whatever direction he wants. I mean, he's on one. I mean, there's nothing more to say. As you were watching that game, were there any other players that popped in your mind watching Devin do what he was doing? Was there anything that just stuck out to you the most? Because I feel like there's so many directions we can take this, but we oftentimes overlook Devin because we're talking about dumb bench minutes. I want to I focus on this man right now and give him his flowers while he's doing this incredible thing. Well, my question in response to your question is, which game are you speaking to? Dude, good. <laughs> You could talk about the 47 on 25 attempts in game in game three, or you could talk about the 36 on 18 attempts in game four. <laughs> it's I mean, it's it's historic, and you can scroll through any Twitter feed where you follow any connected basketball account, and they're all just gushing with stats of just the rare air that he is in right now, not just the scoring, but the efficiency in which he's doing it. But it's not that. He's averaging 27, shooting 70%. It's, no, the last person to score this much through this many games was Michael Jordan. And he's doing it at that efficiency. And, oh, yes, career-high 12 assists. And, oh, yes, some of the best defense he's played in his career. I mean, it's unreal what he is doing. And that's, that's one thing. And I don't – I want you to set me straight here. Be my basketball conscience. I watched a lot of Kobe Bryant. In my life, I watched a lot of Kobe in the playoffs. I think in terms of the the scoring prowess, the ability to just get going, I think that is a fair comparison. And if you look at game three, sure. What I saw in game four last night, his ability to create for others was something that I don't know. Maybe all my memories because it was just Kobe killing my sons. I forget about what he did for other players. But I mean, he looked Devin looked special as a creator and facilitator in ways that don't maybe come to my mind when I think about Kobe Bryant greatness. Was that an aspect of Kobe's game that maybe I'm just ignoring uh, in my history as I've blotted out all the things he did to my fan or uh, all to my teams growing up? Because that's probably <laughs> fair. I won't say that you're ignoring. It's just that his scoring was just so proficient, so great, so unique that there's so many scoring clips that come to mind before you think of Kobe right. making passes. So 
I won't say that you're ignoring it, but I will say that Kobe was definitely one of the most well-rounded players in general, independent of scoring. However, he wasn't operating off of like the pick and roll as a, as a combo guard on the volume and to the extent to which Devin Booker is. And I think that in itself just speaks to the level of play he's at because he's able to toggle from being an initiator of offense to being a scorer to blending both of those two dynamics together to where he's playing chess with the defense in real time and playing chess with the opposing coach in real time to where, okay, he's coming off the screen, but we're not sure if he's going to try to threaten that edge to turn the corner while Jokic is at the level or if he's going to stretch them out to skip that pass to the corner and get the defense in rotation. Or if he's going to hold the low man and then hit DeAndre Ayton or Jock Landa underneath the basket while they have the low man peeled, pinned inside. Like, he's just hitting all of the right notes for this team. And, I mean, he's the best basketball player in the NBA right now, which is saying a lot when you got players like Jimmy Butler putting out the number one seed, putting out the team with the best record in the NBA through the regular season in five games. Um, players like Kevin Durant on your team. Um, like a player like Nikola Jokic on the other side, who's won two of the last three MVPs, the current MVP, Joel Embiid in the other conference. Like there's a lot of players playing some of their best basketball of the season right now. You still got that Steph Curry guy over there as well, as well as that LeBron James guy. Like there's a lot of heavy hitters playing some of their best ball of the season. And for him to be leaps and bounds better than everybody else at this point, I mean, you can't drop a better scenario this is what you want from your franchise player the player that you're invested most into at this time of the season he's clicking yeah it it brought to mind as i was watching the game yesterday um into the valley for those that are maybe new here brought on with the uh, steven wave been around for a bit we're getting close to episode 100 and some of those episodes in the summer were i'm not gonna say were drags but sometimes you got to look for it right one of my all-time favorite episodes that that we recorded was uh, with Philip and Ryan and myself, and we were talking about where does Devin Booker rank in the NBA? Top what? And so we all filled out our own rankings. We compiled them. We put them together, and we saw where he was. And going into the season, I think the highest someone had him was like maybe number nine. I think the lowest was 12 or 13, pretty squarely in that area. And we talked at length about, what does he need to do to make the jump? And we also talked about for the team, do they have enough around him at his current state or do they need to do something? So we saw the Kevin Durant trade. We saw this, all right, let's plug and play this top five player to raise the ceiling, uh, no matter what it does to the floor with the depth, right? But you've still got you know a top five and then you've got a top 12, 13, whatever. Devin Booker, has look i mean this isn't this isn't a fluke this isn't luck the effort on defense everything i mean you nailed it everything clicking on offense mm -hmm. this guy is going to start next season in the mvp talks not in some like let's throw him in there because he's a good no offense jason tatum like let's throw him in there because they had a finals run he's impressive he's young and that's great they're like no this guy is showing us that he is on a level that in back-to-back -back nights playing alongside Kevin Durant, he was 1A. And Kevin Durant knew that. That takes a special, not just talent, but a mentality to where a Kevin Durant is like, yeah, I, I know where I'm at. I mean, when was the last time you saw someone leaving Kevin Durant on the perimeter to go double somebody else? Are you kidding me? Like, it was laughable. There was a moment last night. They helped off Kevin Durant. Book got it to him. KD scored, and they looked at each other and chuckled. And it's got to be like, oh, a defender is leaving me? Like when and That was not by accident. That was no. not by accident. That was intentionally. They decided to live with the easy money sniper wide open at the top of the dome. <laughs> I mean, when, when on earth has that happened? And the only – because here's the thing. Even in Warriors era ball, no one's leaving him. No one's leaving him to help on Steph. And don't mistake that, listeners, to think Steph is lesser. Steph is still just I, – I would go on for years talking about Steph Curry. But, like, that <laughs> is just a level of praise and respect for what Devin Booker is doing. Uh, and, again, my excitement – let me skip over the recaps for those who have been living under rocks somewhere. 
Game three, Suns win 121-114 with Kevin Durant and Devin Booker combining for 86 points. Mm -hmm. And as a small caveat here, one thing that has been slightly overlooked because of Booker's efficiency is Kevin Durant's inefficiency from the field, going 12 of 31. Uh, The two of us were texting at the end of that game. At the end of game three, we're like, we still haven't seen a true Kevin Durant game. And the free throw numbers allowed it to look better from the base level of like box score looking, but still not himself. He owned up to it in the, in the post game I thought was impressive. And then game four Suns win 129, 124. Got to give Jokic some love right off the top. 20 of 30 in 39 minutes, 53 points, only two fouls, which I think is also a stat worth mentioning. (laughs) But Devin Booker, 14 of 18, 3 of 4 from 3, 36 points, 12 assists, 6 rebounds, and Kevin Durant coming in with 36 of his own on 11 of 19, and dare I say, still not a peak Kevin Durant game. Those two guys willed the Suns to victory in Game 3. And in Game 4, they both put together a phenomenal performance, but... The thing that the Suns have been trashed on all playoff long and ever Mm. since, ever Mm. since that trade, no depth. And Mm. when you look at the box score and you want to see the difference, especially in game four, I want you to look at the Nuggets bench and I want you to look at the Suns bench and tell me who came to play. The Nuggets were without question, confused, unsure of what to do. Mike slash Michael Malone had no answers outside of the guys he had out there. And Monty Williams made some big decisions that ended up helping. And I wanted to just kind of open, open it up with that one. What has impressed you? What has surprised you looking at maybe game three or game four from the guys that aren't named Kevin Durant and Devin Booker? Um, and I know that still includes some starters. And I think there's plenty to talk about with DeAndre Ayton. I think there's some stuff to talk about with Kogi, with whomever. But what are some things that have really stood out to you in games three and four? Because uh, I want to—I really want to cover what we've seen so far, and then kind of open it up to say what are we looking at down the road. So three and four, outside of book and KD, what what do you like? What do you not like? Uh, what were your takeaways? I think the biggest takeaway, if we're talking about non Durant and non Booker entities of the Suns, would definitely be Monty Williams. Uh, we've both spoken at length about the wrongful, um, let's just say, assessments of his job and what he's doing and what he's deciding to do or what deciding not to do at any given moment over the course of regular season games or even more so in the playoff games where the, those decisions are magnified a little bit more. Um, he came out and severely outcoached Mike Malone in these two games in Phoenix. And, of course, Devin Booker is going to steal the plot, but the fact that Monty essentially got out of his comfort zone, which is something that the best coaches will do, and they will do it over and over and over again to keep getting themselves wins in in this particular moment in the season. You can look back at where his lineage traces back to um, under the tutelage of Greg Popovich. Popovich was one of the best at tinkering with his rotations, tinkering with lineups, tinkering with um, just different player dynamics to get the most out of his team based off of what an opponent might have or might not have to exploit it. And we've seen Monty struggle with having that certain reach or at least showing that he has that certain reach and feel for his team at any given moment in the regular season. So to see him do so in the playoffs now, Again, especially with a new a new lineup, a new rotation, a new group of players that he's not necessarily accustomed to playing to the volume of minutes he needs to in this new rendition. To see him do that, um, to see him branch off from his base in Josh Okoji and Tory Craig getting the lion's share of the minutes, particularly on the wing around the two stars, and to see him use players like Terrence Ross, players like TJ Warren, players like Landry Shamit. To see him use those three players more than he used the former two players that I mentioned. Again, with your back against the wall, like, of course, you have more days to live, even if you did lose one of these two games. But to do it and to find the two pieces of those three names that stuck most and then stick with your guns in the waning moments of those games. 
that is that is like that is coaching. That is A plus coaching. That's A plus checking of temperatures within your rotation players and then deploying them within your scheme to get these wins at this time of the season. I think that's the most important thing to take. I I thought Monty did a great job after mm-hmm. game two. Just I mean, and that comes with some real self-evaluation and saying, like, I think we can all say, looking at some parts of game one and two, like, that maybe wasn't the right call. And I thought one of the biggest moments, and it happened in game three and carried into game four, was benching DeAndre Ayton in closing time clutch minutes. Like, what what a ballsy decision from the guy. DA wasn't happy. Like, it was clear. That was not an easy decision to to make. It wasn't an easy one to receive on the player's end, but it was the right call. And that was for a center who was getting the equivalent of third string minutes a series ago. That is trust in knowing your players. And I, I will check the clock before starting this. This is not a victory lap. This is just a, I want to be very clear. For some reason, Suns, Twitter, fans, I don't know. It's like they hear one loud opinion from either someone they like, someone they think's funny, someone that knows ball, and they're like, that person said this. That must be the correct opinion. And so whether it's you repeatedly saying, Chris Paul should have the ball in his hands, he is a phenomenal basketball player. When the whole world's like, Chris is 48 years old, get him off the court. Sometimes you can be the quiet voice and still be right in the end. And we saw that before he got hurt. What kills me in this, whoever is loud and popular, like that must be it. The fact that people didn't want Landry Shamit playing because of, quote, favoritism from the coach, because Monty said one passing thing however many years ago about, he could date my daughter. Goodness gracious, grow up. How dumb. And here's here is the realistic point to this. I've coached soccer at the lowest of levels, high school levels, competitive, whatever. There are so many wonderful kids that I have benched. Do you know why? Because as a coach, I would like to win the game. So I am going to put the 11 out there that I think is going to win the game because that benefits everybody to think that a professional basketball coach coach of the year, mind you would continue playing someone who's a detriment to the team. Who's being booed by his home fans because he likes the guy grow up. That's insane. Get the jokes out, whatever game four, Landry Shamit. Well done, sir. You shut everyone up. And also game three, you also shut everyone up because defensively, I don't know who on the Suns could have done much better against Jamal Murray. And that's just the, they're out there for a reason. They are pro basketball players who are on a team for a reason. And the coach plays them for a reason, right? Like I just don't understand how the fan base has had such a majority voice being so loud from so many blue check marks to just undervalue guys who are doing it the right way, keeping their heads down and just putting in the work. And that goes to Jock Landale too, who we like because he's likable and we love him. But the dude's doing the exact same thing as Landry Shamit. Taking the opportunity, putting in the work, doing what's asked of him. And some nights are his nights and he gets a little bit more credit. Terrence Ross, TJ Warren, go down the line. Dudes stepped up. Game four, legitimately, was one of my favorite Suns wins in a long time because it was a team effort. You take away from that game that, quote, DeAndre Ayton got his act together after game three. The dude had eight and eight. But box score doesn't impact, like, everything. He was great. The energy was there. Everything you want from him is there. And I don't care if he's making $135 million. If you give me that eight and eight, I'll take it. So for me, that all goes back to Monty. And so for people to be calling for him to get fired is just insane to me. And I am thrilled that the Suns have allowed themselves to be in a position to make this a series. I would have been really sad 
if they dropped game three or four. And it was kind of this defeatist mentality. I'm glad they have shown as a team what they can do. I'm glad Devin Booker has shown what type of a leader he is. Uh, And I think Kevin Durant has showed his value too, being a guy willing to fit into the system, right? Like this is not a Kevin Durant-centered Luka-style offense. Like this is Suns basketball. And Monty put out a bunch of .5 guys. Terrence Ross catch the ball in the corner. About .23 seconds, he knows if he's shooting or if he's passing. He played it Monty's way. So, my bad. Longer than it needed to be. But Monty Williams deserves a whole lot of credit. The guys that the home fans have been booing deserves a lot of credit. Hopefully gets a little bit more love moving forward because they bring value. And when things go the right way, it's incredible how much better things seem. I want to talk Nuggets game three and four real quick. I thought... And this might be me really just getting getting a little speculative here, my tinfoil hat. I saw some cr- tiny cracks maybe in game three, and I definitely felt some cracks in game four. Whether that was a Michael Porter Jr. decision that seemed to frustrate his teammates, whether that's Jamal Murray snapping at Coach Malone after a timeout he did not think should be called, whether that's Jokic's not worth mentioning stupidity and technical foul, I liked what I saw in the sense that I don't watch game three and four and think the Nuggets have an easy fix to the problems the Suns presented in game three and four. So put on your Michael Malone hat here. You just watched game three and four. What are your takeaways if you're the Denver Nuggets? Well, I mean, to kind of branch even more off of the point that you just made from what you saw in games three and four, uh, the the foundation of those cracks came from the third quarter in game two before yeah. Chris Paul got hurt. And even a little bit after that, before the momentum from before he got hurt kind of fizzled out in the fourth quarter and they lost their process on offense. Uh, the Suns were able to keep the Nuggets consistently in rotation. Now, they weren't knocking down their threes to the extent that they were at home, which is a big difference in why they lost game game two versus why they won game three and four. Nonetheless, the the process was there. The Suns working their way across the floor through their three-player actions and shortening up the uh, rotations from the Nuggets defense and putting players in decisions-making situations where they're the only person that's able to impact in terms of help instead of having two players that are able to make rotations as just one and just spamming those actions over and over. That's where it all started. And the process just grew more profound in addition to Monty Williams putting more capable players in those positions to execute within the offensive process. Thinking back from a Nuggets perspective, defensively, it took them a while, but your opponent has figured out your defense. Mm -hmm. So now, by you dictating with your defense initially and essentially calling their bluff because you didn't think that they would play some of the players that they have played that are more capable or beyond capable compared to the players that were playing before in those positions. Now we're late in the series and we're back tied. Um, You got to be feeling uneasy. I'm not sure if the Nuggets have another adjustment to make because, so for people that don't watch the Nuggets or pay much attention to them outside of when the this series started or even when the playoffs started this year, an adjustment they made coming into this season was using a dictative style of defense with Nikola Jokic at the level of the screen, sometimes blitzing, sometimes dropping back into drop after the, the player with the ball comes off of the pick, or sometimes um, just staying at the level and flat hedging. That's been the premise of their defense, being Nikola Jokic being active at the level of the screen versus sitting back in a medium drop, which is essentially what the Suns killed in the 2021 playoffs. They've made that adjustment, and they've made that their newfound base defensively. So when a team especially like the Nuggets, has made the premise of their defense be this specific coverage, and you haven't really practiced any other type of coverage outside of that, and a team like the Phoenix Suns, like we mentioned, like I zoomed in on in the preview, is more than capable of any other team in the playoffs of exploiting that style of defense should they hit the right buttons with their rotations and lineups and all of that stuff. You get in this situation where they figured you out, and the what you once were dictating with has now become your weakness. And this is the chess of the playoffs 
that makes things so great. This is why you don't overreact to one game or two games or even three games. There's a lot of feeling out, especially for two teams that didn't see each other healthy all season. There's a natural feeling out process. They're throwing jabs at each other and getting a feel for how much power this jab has and what can you counter with. And Monty Williams, through his patience, has now figured out what notes to hit with what specific players within his team to exploit what's being conceded from the Nuggets. So here we are now drawn even going back to Denver. I'm honestly not sure the Nuggets have many counters defensively to take away anything that the Suns are doing. In addition to the fact that we keep harping on Kevin Durant, the best player for the Suns coming into this series through most people's eyes, and it's been Devin Booker, but the biggest threat for the Nuggets was clearly Kevin Durant, the way they were playing him early in the series. Just kind of looking at that and the fact that he hasn't even hit the notes that he can as a scorer in efficiency on volume, they haven't even seen that dynamic into the plot for the Suns. So I'm not I'm not sure. I mean, outside of scoring more, which their shooters have been um, taken off the table for the most part, and that's been strategically done by the Suns. It's really only been Jokic and Murray, and really only Jokic because Murray hasn't been as efficient as they need him to be as he was in game one. Uh, so just kind of looking at adjustments for the Nuggets, I'm not. I'm really not sure, man. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I think, I think a really big part of what you said was their lack of options has been kind of dictated by Monty's willingness to make a change. Correct. Uh, Josh Okoge is two of twelve from three in the playoffs, and Torrey Craig was doing enough in the first series to justify having him out there. He's been ice cold in this series. Uh, one of Five, I think, from three. His uh, regression has been insane. Absolutely. <laughs> and we've talked about it before. We text about it a bit through the game. The offense for the Suns becomes unstoppable when you have a guy in the corner on that third swing pass who can actually do something. And if that means you're giving up a little bit of offensive rebounding or a little bit of defensive whatever for a guy that has to, you have to respect him. I don't know what the best word is there. Has the gravity needed to create space? Like Terrence Ross only needs to make one of three shots for them to be like, okay, we've got to do something. And you've seen it with Landry. You've seen Landry have games where he missed his first two. And so they don't respect him. The problem is sometimes it seems like his confidence takes a dip and he doesn't take that third one. That could be the one that changes everything. TJ Warren, Terrence Ross, Landry Shamit. Guys offensively have a higher ceiling shooting the ball than Torrey Craig and Josh Kogi. Montu said, essentially, I'm willing to see if we can step up the intensity on defense, even if our defensive, you know, think 2K world ratings are a little lower, but we can hustle and we can fight to have someone in the corner who actually demands a little bit of respect. And so now you're saying, wait a second. Nuggets defensively, I don't know what they're going to do because we've seen them help off of Booker. We've seen them help off KD at times. Eventually, you don't get that luxury because you have someone wide open. And, and I agree. I don't know what the Nuggets are going to do. I think offensively, one thing that they're great at is taking the gravity of Jokic and letting it create for others in some way. I still think the Murray Jokic two man game is just I'm disgusting. Like it is phenomenal. It's arguably it's arguably the best, especially it, on this stage because of his randomness. It, yes, it is phenomenal. He can shoot from anywhere. Oh, both at a of high them. clip. Yeah. <laughs> but in but typically you you imagine the big bulky guy on the rolling end of things to not have that or not be able to initiate. The guy can do everything. Just give him the credit. He can do anything and he can make shots that fundamentally look like they should not be made, but he does it like it's nothing. So their two man game. I don't think there is an easy fix for the Suns because I think Monty Williams is saying I'm okay letting them do that over and over and over and not helping off of a Michael Porter Jr. who we don't want to get hot or helping off of the KCP. Essentially, we don't want to happen to us what's happening to them. We're okay with this. So if Jokic scores 50-something, that's fine. We know where the volume's coming from. Don't foul him. He's going to miss some, and we take advantage of that. 
But that's, I mean, that's what kills you. A, you're not going to lose the momentum battle with Jokic making three of four under the rim. You lose it when Michael Porter Jr. hits three of four threes in a four-minute span, and you look at the scoreboard and go, oh, crap, what happened? Or when that when that guy is KCP like it was in game one and two. Right, which is just knocking even more frustrating. Four, knocking down four of seven attempts through two games. That's Absolutely. Or Aaron Gordon hitting three threes in game one. Like those are the type of math problems that you don't want. If it's coming from the primary players, cool. Especially specifically Jokic. If it's coming from him, cool. But if it's Jamal Murray, they've mitigated a lot of that and then trickle down the line from there. And go and go back and watch game one and two if you're listening and and look at the shot quality of mm-hmm. KCP and Aaron Gordon. They were open shots. Those guys don't take that volume unless they're being asked to. The Suns made a decision to allow that to be what beat him, and it did. And so Monty says, okay, let's look at this again. Let's not give him that confidence. I mean, this wasn't a Norman Powell performance from Aaron Gordon shooting threes over every single time. When you give a guy a couple wide-open shots, hitting a contested one gets a lot easier. And so the Suns made major adjustments on both ends of the floor, and I think they've both paid off. And I, I really think you're right. It's like Michael Malone didn't expect Monty to ditch the two guys he's been riding with who are hounds on defense and throw in Terrence Ross, a guy we joked about looking so lost that it's like thought bubbles pop up on his head in the half-court defense. But he's made it work. And I think a lot of the reason of what allows that to work is because you're seeing some pretty phenomenal defense from Devin Booker and Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant's defense as the help side rim protector, I've loved every bit of it. I think it's the part of his game that I didn't realize I would love as much as I am, but just watching him do what he does. Do you think maybe it's not being talked enough or talked about enough the fact that if you do get DA to help off, you have seven foot who knows with shoes Kevin Durant coming because I feel like he's been phenomenal in that role. Yeah, I actually, that's part of the lens that I decided to look through the Kevin Durant edition through uh, and kind of doing like a zoom in, like a film session at large about his game outside of his scoring. I think everybody initially went directly to his offense, considering um, just how great of a player he is. Like He's one of the best scorers of all time. He make, maybe makes scoring look as easy as any player in the history of the NBA has. So I was like, okay, that's the obvious. Let's kind of zag away from that because he has so much more to his game. And outside of his passing, outside of his ability to screen and things like that, I talked about his ability to be a, a secondary anchor to a defense. And by secondary anchor to kind of define it, I'm talking about being able to negotiate switches off the ball to take away what mismatch a team may have created through their offensive actions and reposition and resolidify the defense to kind of reset that. Uh, and we kind of saw that against the Clippers with their matchup hunting and him kind of scrambling guys out of mismatches. Uh, we've seen it a couple of times in this series against the Nuggets. And in addition to that anchoring in terms of communication and just a process and what an offense might be trying to do on any given play, has also been him being on time and on schedule, like you mentioned, with rotations as a secondary rim protector. People don't necessarily understand that this man is essentially the same height as DeAndre Aiden and has essentially the same wingspan as DeAndre Aiden. There may be an inch or less than an inch that differentiates between the two in height and wingspan. So when you add to that the athleticism, the IQ, and just the general feel that Kevin Durant has, I mean, you get this chaos-inducing condor-like figure behind the condor-like figure that's already at center. And that's a lot of length for a defense to have to deal with. Like, a lot of times when you you see guys get isolation attempts with Kevin Durant, they think they've created enough space because they might get a reaction out of them. But that that length, you can't recover. Like, you can't make up for. Same thing with players like Aaron Gordon who create space underneath the basket. You might get an initial bump on Kevin Durant because of his stature. He's not the strongest in terms of his upper body strength or even his lower body. But again, that length, you can't, like, that's just something you can't really um, neutralize in most scenarios on a basketball court. And we're seeing what he does with that activity on a nightly basis now. And you're so used to in playoff basketball, I think, if you're looking at a team that's got a traditional five, like a true five, 
you're going to attack it one of two ways. Either they play in a drop and you're going to absolutely feast on that weak spot right there around the free throw line, or you're going to switch and get them out. You want to put, uh, which, what big man do I want to make fun of? Uh, Rudy Gobert is not as bad, but there's plenty. I mean, Carl Anthony Towns guarding on the perimeter. Who knows, right? You want to get him out there where he's not comfortable. He can't move his feet, whatever. DeAndre Ayton is a remarkably capable perimeter defender. So you're thinking to yourself, all right, well, that sucks. But at least we got the big guy out of the place where he probably wants to be. What other team who can still operate a functional offense, a.k.a. not the Timberwolves, can have their five dragged out that far and have a true, legit, movable rim protector down there still. Like, that is stupid. And I I know we talked about it early, and I got to continue to give you the credit. Kevin Durant's defensive abilities are phenomenal. And I think a lot of people talked after that trade, what are we going to do without Mikhail? What are we going to do without, right? Like the defense is going to sink. We don't have that. Look, Kevin Durant's not getting defense player of the year votes. I get that. But mm-hmm. what he allows the other four to do is phenomenal. And when you look and say, why does it make sense that Landry Shamit defensively is doing a good job? The way he's playing, snaking through every screen, using his tiny little body to get around, get through, go under, and just be a pest. That works because you always have Kevin Durant or DeAndre Ayton down there. That doesn't work if they're bringing the five up high on that screen and attacking. But because you have that luxury that is two true, movable, agile rim protectors, you can tell your Landry to go be a pest. And Josh did great with that, too. I honestly think Landry's tiny frame was a plus. Crazy enough, it's a lot easier to screen Josh because of his size versus this little pencil man going through. But, like, that is just – it just can't be – be said enough and i think when you look at Jokic putting up 50 you have a tendency to be like the idiot media members who are like "Ooh, deandre ayton got cooked again eight points eight rebounds Jokic putting up 50 something watch the game the film tells a very very different story uh and so i want to hear your take whether it's a prediction whether it's a tweak what should our listeners be looking for in game five? Because I I legitimately have no idea where you want to go with this, but I'm excited myself to listen and kind of have that in the back of my mind going into tomorrow night. So one, and speaking about this series at large in the preview, I was speaking to one of the entities the Suns could uh, potentially dictate from if they played it the right way, which is the emphasis, was off the bench. Of course, there's never a full bench lineup that's out there, especially in the playoffs. I don't think any team runs a full five-man bench lineup at any given point throughout their rotations. But with the Suns' newfound, um, shouldn't be newfound, but the newfound the newfound entities within the rotation uh, with players like Terrence Ross, TJ Warren, and Landry Shamit. Reminding Monty that they a they can be trustable and be trustworthy enough on the defensive side to where they won't be a complete liability, and then also reminding him the the plus that they can be on the offensive side of the ball, especially in this series. Um, I think the place that they can win this series is going to be from the bench, and my particular reason for mentioning that in the preview was because the Nuggets go small off their bench and. They don't have Bones Highland. They don't have Will Barton. They don't have this um, this random scoring type of uh, potential guy off the bench that's going to be a threat. Like that, that is Jamal Murray because he's staggered with their bench. But it looks a lot different when Nikola Jokic is not on the floor mm-hmm. because you can put a lot more attention on him. You can compact the um, the driving lanes and kind of condense the court on him because guess who's around him? Bruce Brown, Christian Brown. Aaron Gordon, Jeff Green, like no slights of those guys. Those guys are all solid, but that is an extremely defensive-minded lineup. And a way to counter that 
especially looking at the way that the Suns roster is built off the bench um, exclusively, and then also adding to that the rotations that they run, that bench lineup usually is featured with one of Kevin Durant or Devin Booker on the floor, if not both. So if you take that, you take a defensive-minded opponent lineup, and you add to that having Kevin Durant or Devin Booker or both on the floor, in addition to a Landry Shamit or a Terrence Ross, you have multiple creators, multiple players that can knock down open shots off of spot-ups when the defense is put into rotation, usually from one of the two better players on the floor. That's what you want. That's the way that you counter with your lineups and put your players in positions to be as great as they can be. And I think we saw a lot of that in game in game three, just off of the the slight adjustment that Monty made and playing Terrence Ross and TJ Warren more than um than um Josh Okoji and Tory Craig did in game three, and then adding to that in game four by bringing Landry Shaman and allowing for him to play more as well. You have your formula. So now it's about figuring out, checking the temperature of those three players early in the game and deploying the two of those three that's playing best in addition to your best your best two players and rolling out to the dice from that perspective. That's the way that this team will be able to win this series. It's going to come down to whose bench plays better because the, the, the top four players in this series, they're throwing jabs, they're throwing all types of uppercuts and dancing around the ring with each other. And it's extremely entertaining basketball to see, but it's going to come down to who's ancillary players are going to make the most plays and i think that's going to be the bench i got one other thing i'm looking for i want to get your thoughts on this we have not mentioned i don't think this entire episode one of the starting five and that's campaign stepping in in chris paul's absence again box score you're not going to look at that and say campaign was phenomenal but there's one thing that i think he has brought to the table that has really helped in game three and game four that man wants to run. He is getting angry at whoever's getting the inbound after to make if they're not getting it in quick and they're moving. The pace in which the Suns have played has been noticeably different. I think part of that is having, no offense, Tory Craig, but more of the Landry, Terrence, whoever, able to move, know where they're going on offense, can get into their sets quicker. But campaign is driving the bus there in really getting that going in some of those minutes for the Nuggets, where if you can do some damage and force that next sub to be just a little quicker, you're going to slowly wear them down and have it be a much tougher series for Jamal and Nicola as they're doing more and more and more. Because just physically, what Jamal Murray is dealing with, with either Josh, Landry, whomever, that will wear you down, especially when you then have to do some sort of defense and Jokic can put up 30 shots, but I'm telling you that too will exhaust you. So what did you see out of campaign was, am I being too optimistic and even finding one thing that he brought that that's noteworthy? Um, but I mean, he's, he's a big part of this with Chris Paul out and Chris Paul's now announced out again for game five timetable. Unsure. What are your thoughts on campaign going into game five? Well, I keep hopping back onto the preview pod, but campaign was a name that I also mentioned I felt could be a very important piece for this team. Um, Obviously, in the first round, he would have been important, but especially in this series, just the pace that he plays with is different. It's a contrast to what Chris Paul brings to the the fold, and that's what you want. You want a different style of play. Um, I think we talked about it actually in the first round, and I likened it to the pace that John Moran plays at versus the pace that Tyus Jones plays at. Mm-hmm. Like those are they're a stark contrast to the two. And that's, that's the beauty of it. You get two different looks within your main rotation and you're able to dictate with that because the players are so different. That pace that campaign plays at is just, it's just different, man. But I think, and I think that's, that's maybe the most important thing that he's bringing to the fold, Like he hasn't played extremely well by any stretch, but He's just playing with the 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 pace. I mean, it's in a series that has kind of lacked it in stretches. The Suns have had a lot of their um, best moments when they're playing with their defense set, and the defense is being set because of the pace that they're playing with on offense. If you kind of just look at the game within the game in real time, just kind of pay attention to how many times within uh, within the channel of the floor, like kind of between the free throw lines. How many Suns players cross the half-court line before Nuggets players do? And what you're going to see is a ton of hit-ahead passes 
there was one pass from uh, DeAndre Aiden. They hit ahead to Josh Koji, who had a contest, and then he leaked ahead. Aiden threw it over the head like Kevin Love, and then Koji was able to hit Devin Booker, who filled the left passing lane on the jump pass. Yeah, on the jump pass, yeah. Devin funny. Booker, Devin Booker came flying through like he was Stephon Diggs running a post on the left side. Koji hit him. Booker got a dunk. All type of momentum in that play. There was really only one Nuggets defender back, and there were two Suns players because of the advance pass from DeAndre Aiden. And in addition to that, we've seen Kevin Durant and Devin Booker hitting each other with those hit-ahead passes. Chris Paul has spoken at length about them wanting to up their pace since game one of that in the series against the Clippers. So this was going on before he before he got before he got hurt. So for the people that keep making this crazy, um, I, yeah, I know. Yeah, please watch the games. Stop pushing agendas. Watch the games because yes, you're getting attention because you're making fun of the old guy and all of that fun stuff. That's cute. But if you're actually watching the games, they were doing the same thing with Chris Paul on the floor. This has been a consistent thing for this team since game one of the Clippers series. And now it's just being exacerbated because you have campaign that's in. It's not in spite of Chris Paul being out. Like, don't do that. <laughs> anyways, anyways, it's a it's a team thing and everybody's buying into that. And we're seeing the results of it. And that's another, again, kudos to Monty Williams for imploring for this team to continue to play with more pace getting into their stuff. That's allowing for them to have their defense set a lot more consistently. And we know what this team is capable of when they're consistently and sustainably having a defense set and playing with more pace is enabling them just that. Jock is doing a really good job with the pace too. Oh my goodness, man. Like there's a lot of things he's doing well. (sighs) That coming from your five in those minutes, he is sprinting to that spot, whether it's going for the seal, whether it's going to be the guy receiving that pass, he is just, man is continuing to do a lot of things right that will continue to make the non-DeAndre Ayton minutes easier. And Jokic needs to breathe sometimes. And so if you can give yourself the luxury of Ayton getting some rest in those minutes too, uh, phenomenal series for Jock. Uh, Again, wherever you want to go with this, what do you want to leave the listeners with after the game three and game four? What's, What's sitting heavy on your heart, whether it's giving love to Chris Paul, the point guard himself, whether it's uh, just the fact that Michael Malone reminds me personally of an angry bulldog. Uh, what do you, what do you got for the listeners before we bring this thing to a close? All right. I got a couple of quick things I'm going to kind of hit on. So Get the it. first one, the first one being, we talked about the Suns figuring out the Nuggets defense. They, they've also figured out how to hit the roller. And we saw that a little bit in game three and a little bit more in game four, where they've been hitting a short roll and that's been enabling them with Jock Landale with Josh Okoji a couple of times, and of course with DeAndre Aiden, to either hit that pocket, that little basket um, underneath the free throw line before they get to the low man, or for DeAndre Aiden, he had a couple of dunks on the roll because the low man was late. Uh, They've been finding ways, and it's been particularly when they're picking on Jamal Murray, putting him in rotation um, defensively. It's not always about isolating and finding a way to get to that guy and go against him in isolation with a live dribble. You can also make them make decisions and rotations. And if they're late on those rotations, that's even more effective because it's more of a team thing versus you going at somebody one-on-one and taking advantage of them like that. So the Suns being able to exploit their defense in that manner, in addition to the skip passes and the timeliness of it all, is just it's going to be important for them to continue to hit that, that specific pressure point within the Nuggets defense. In addition to that, Devin Booker, man, I know we talked about his scoring. I know we talked about his playmaking. But I want to talk about his buy-in. So in game four, we saw Landry Shaman knock down, was it five threes in the second half or four threes in the second half? Like that, yeah, I think it was four in the fourth, maybe. I don't remember. Yes, yes, it was four in the fourth. So the premise of it all, though, it comes from a lot of that stemming from Devin Booker. Devin Booker buying in in the clutch. We're talking about the last five minutes of a game that's within five points in the playoffs where you need this game to draw back even going back to Denver. Otherwise, the odds and everything else gets a lot more murky instead of drawing even. What we saw Devin Booker do is, again, in a game where he was scoring at will, what did he do? Concede. Exactly. He's bought into the system. He conceded the advantage that he creates, drawing two to the ball, stringing that out, 
stretching out the rotations. If you watch my film sessions, you'll see me speaking to Devin Booker doing just this all season long. Those reps are playing out now. He's bought in, stretching it out, and allowing for his teammates to make those plays at the meaningful moments. And the shot quality for the Suns never gets higher than when Devin Booker is getting two to the ball and then he's able to play make out of that. The shot quality for the Suns never gets higher than that. So looking at that and him continuing to stretch out the Nuggets defense as they try to flatten them out with their defensive process is going to be important to watch. And then the last thing is Terrence Ross and TJ Warren. But specifically for me, Terrence Ross. Yeah. He is the type of player that has an unpredictability that can, of course, work against you. But if it's tinkered with the right way and if he's insulated the right way, it could be such an added bonus that it kind of tilts the scale completely in your favor. So if the scale is like maybe three-fourths of the way tilted towards you, he could potentially make it a completely vertical one that just upends everything scheme-wise that a team might be doing just because he has the ability to knock down shots and be a second-side assassin playing off of uh, off of closeouts, whether it's being shooting or uh, attacking them. Monty has to make sure he gets some minutes, especially on the road. I think mm-hmm. there's going to be some of those role players might get trigger shy. One thing that Terrence Ross will never be is trigger shy. You need a player that's going to have, I think I called it, um, it's positive, irrational, irrational uh, thinking in terms, of, in terms of his offense. It might not necessarily be the best shot, but sometimes you need a player that's going to take that shot to keep your offensive flow. And if he's knocking those shots down, that math added to what Kevin Durant and Devin Booker are doing. Again, we keep talking about ancillary players being most important in this series. That's that's your avenue there. So shout out Terrence Ross for staying ready. I'm looking forward to seeing him have a big game in game five. I'm excited for game five. I'm scared as well and nervous, just like all the other Suns fans out there. But I'm excited for game five. And again, basketball. <laughs> this is a series, three-game mm-hmm. series, going to Denver. I'm pumped. I'm also excited as we wrap up this recording four minutes before Warriors-Lakers. I just love playoff basketball. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm proud of myself. I wasn't checking the Heat-Knicks game. I'm wondering if you know what's going on there. Man, I got the TV on right next to you. <laughs> <laughs> You've got more self-control than me, or you're just a much better actor. Uh, but no, nah, I'm uh, sick listen, <laughs> if you are enjoying Suns basketball, once again, enjoy the playoffs. Watch some other hoops. If you got to trick yourself into thinking it's Suns-related, Watch Warriors Lakers like you're game planning for your next opponent. I don't care what it takes. There, I mean, Steven listed the amount of players that are currently in the playoffs still that are just superstars. It is fun. This is a great time to watch basketball. And right now, it's a really good time to cheer for one of the best players in the league who just so happens to be on your team and just so happens to be the number 13 pick. And I uh, went to, uh, where was that college again, Stephen? Uh, what was that? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Kentucky. Wow. What a beautiful ending. Everyone, thank you for listening. We are going to get this thing posted tonight on Monday. You've got all night and all day to listen to this. Get ready for game five. We hope you give it a listen. For Stephen, I am Ethan. This is Into the Valley, Phoenix Suns podcast. We out. Peace.